Welcome to Pro Se, Law 360's weekly podcast. I'm your host, Amber McKinney. The opioid epidemic has recently been put in the spotlight by Washington policymakers, and that made us start thinking about what's happening with this issue in the courts. Senior reporter Andrew Wesney will be joining us today to give us an overview of the many opioid-related lawsuits that have been recently filed. And later on, we'll end the show by talking about a New Jersey state judge who's been accused of explosive fits of rage and extreme emotional immaturity. As always, I'm here with my co-host, Bill Donahue. Hello, hello. And Alex Lawson. Hey, guys. How's it going today, guys? I mean, I'm just glad we're all here, um, because for one thing, on what what day was it? On Monday, you were, I think you were just like in transit from your apartment to the office, but I I chatted Bill and I was like, have you heard from Amber? I just, I just had a question. She hasn't answered me. And Bill rightly pointed out, well, maybe she got indicted. I mean, it was, it was possible. It was a a big day for indictment. I was in transit because (laughs) I was transfixed that early morning and couldn't leave my apartment because I was watching all this Mueller stuff unspool. Well, I'm glad you're here. I'm glad we're all here. So what we've been alluding to is that the biggest legal news of the week was, by quite a wide margin, the indictment of Paul Manafort and Rick Gates. Yeah, to... it, it wasn't hard to decide what to start the show with. Today. Right. Yeah. Um, they were two senior members of Donald Trump's presidential campaign. They were indicted on Monday by special counsel Robert Mueller as part of his ongoing probe of, of Russian meddling in the 2016 election. Yes. Uh, Mueller's team also secured a guilty plea from a guy named George Papadopoulos. He was a foreign policy advisor to Trump who um, pled guilty to lying to the FBI about his interactions with a Russian agent during the election. So the we talked about this off the air. These Trump stories are so incredibly fast moving that it's, you know, it's often hard to to do them on the podcast when you have a couple days lag time. Yeah. But one angle I thought was really interesting to pull out and one that would be particularly interesting to our listeners was the concept of attorney client privilege. Mm-hmm. Um, something that that Every lawyer knows pretty well. So how does that tie in to what we're talking about with the smaller stuff? Yeah, yeah. So uh, as part of all the documents that were unsealed on Monday as part of the Manafort indictment, we found out that Mueller's team convinced a federal judge months back that – that she should force a former lawyer for Manafort to testify before the grand jury that that handed down these indictments against Manafort. Um, it didn't name the attorney by by name, but um, CNN reported back in August when sort of these issues were coming up, according to the documents we just got, that uh, that Mueller was seeking the testimony of Melissa Lorenza, who's um, a partner at Aiken Gump who focuses on campaign law and lobbying and that kind of thing. Yeah. Now, I mean, even the non-lawyers who are listening are vaguely aware of the idea of attorney-client privilege and not informing on your own clients. Yeah. We had a great story. Kat Green wrote a really interesting story basically talking about why that doesn't apply here, but tell us why, um, you know, they were, that that was able to sort of, we were able to get around that. Right, right. I mean, privilege is sort of a pretty, is a pretty fundamental aspect of the way that our legal system works. And yeah. It normally shields an attorney from testifying against their own client. It shields the information that was shared between them. And, and that's really important. I mean, that's a foundational thing in our jurisprudence because you're supposed to be able to say whatever you want to your attorney and they can't tell anybody. Right. I mean, you have a constitutional right to the best legal representation you can get and, and that would undercut it if you were constantly afraid of, of what you were telling your lawyer being being shared elsewhere or used against you. So, And they got everybody, not just his lawyer informed on him, his rug dealer, his, uh, <laughs> right. his real estate guy or whatever. Yeah. Airbnb, yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'm rug off. dealer, rug dealer, <laughs> client privilege. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll we'll get into that next week. But tell us, tell us more um, about. Uh, but so there are the limits privilege. to privilege. Yes, yes. that's that's the, the 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 key to this situation. Mm-hmm. And um, Mueller's team argued that 
what had been shared between Manafort and his attorney was subject to this exception that that it exempts situations where uh, an accused party uses an attorney to commit a crime or a fraud. Right. It's the crime fraud uh, uh, exemption. So she said, quote, when a person uses attorney the attorney-client relationship to further a criminal scheme, the law is well established that a claim of attorney-client privilege or work product privilege, which is another type of similar privilege, mm-hmm. um, must yield to the grand jury's investigatory needs. Okay. So um, she ordered this former attorney of Manafort to testify as part of this grand jury about questions. One of the charges against him was involving his disclosures of his work on behalf of Ukrainian yeah, there are these political biz- parties. Yeah, and- there are these like Byzantine laws that apply when you are lobbying for a foreign government. Right. Um, and, that, and he didn't do that quite sufficiently. As exactly. Was, yeah. so, so the judge forced her to, um, to testify. So as you've already noted... Very busy case, probably won't be the last indictment, (laughs) Um, but I think what we have seen with this tactic of getting, you know, Manafort's own lawyer to disclose information to the grand jury has been instructive in telling us about Mueller's, you know, strategy or process. What's your read on that? Yeah, I mean, like, like many things that happened on Monday... This little nugget was immediately sort of uh, scrutinized for what it means for this case going forward. Because Because obviously there is no case with bigger stakes than this one. I mean, what we got out of these indictments was a lot of like pulling back the curtain, like what's Mueller's team really been up to and what are they going to do in the coming months? Right. Mm -hmm. So I think Al hinted at this, but by, by showing a willingness to use this pretty rare sort of, you know, you don't do it a whole lot. This mm-hmm. tactic of forcing an attorney to, to testify against their own client and doing it successfully. Mueller showed that that he and his team are willing to be very aggressive yeah, and no holds barred. Not messing around. Right, exactly. And Sindhu's story called it a dive bomb approach, which I thought was an interesting term for us. I love that. Yeah. And um, I thought, I don't know if you guys read it, the, the story that came out in the Times today about um, one of the guys on his team, uh, Andrew Weissman, who was a former FBI guy. Yeah, oh yeah. Um, th- they called him a legal pit bull. Um, and, you know, he was behind the, the dawn raid of Manafort's house and yeah. everything. So yeah. we're just learning a lot through things like this, through the Dawn Raid, through all sorts of other things that Mueller is not messing around when it comes to this investigation. And he's going to push his authority as far as it needs to go to to get the information that, that he thinks we need to know. It's going to get pretty wild, guys. We'll keep watching this very aggressive inquiry then. Yeah. So that wasn't the only Trump administration news we had this week. Alex, I know there was another high-profile one you wanted to bring to us today. Yeah, not a great week for the Trump White House on the policy front and now on the on the litigation front because on Monday, um, a D.C. federal judge blocked the implementation of uh, Trump's uh, ban on transgender people serving in the military. Uh, that policy got rolled out earlier this summer and the judge in striking it down, basically said it's uh, very likely unconstitutional and uh, violating due process and equal protection claims under the uh, Fifth Amendment. The judge also said it was hastily rolled out, right? Because this was one of the ones that Trump started via tweet. Yeah, I think it's a that's a good point. Yeah, I think it's instru- catch us up on the- <laughs> it's instructive too. We, we we talked about this a couple weeks ago, but in case you forgot, back near the end of July. President Trump took to his Twitter account, as he often does, and basically just tweeted out, I'm paraphrasing, but said, people who are transgender will will not be allowed to serve in the military in any capacity. Seemingly out of nowhere, just unambiguously yeah. saying, and, and, and out of nowhere. And then from there, spooled some kind of hastily prepared memos outlining how this policy was going to be implemented. It's going to be in effect by, I think it was like March 2018. Right, sort of like reverse engineering it from the tweet. Yeah, yeah. Active service members who are transgender will be discharged. No more can join. 
straightforward stuff. As you might imagine, litigation started soon after that. And now we have our first opining by a federal court on this issue. Uh, D.C. District Judge Colleen Collar Catelli issued a preliminary injunction uh, blocking the ban from going into place. And her analysis was at least as far as things like this go, about as open and shut as it gets. So what did she say? What was, what was, I mean, what were the arguments against this and what did she find? It was a case brought by, as you might imagine, transgender service members who basically said they, this is a pretty straight up discriminatory claim. They were making constitutional claims saying this is violates equal protection. And um, the way it was rolled out was very hasty. And um, in her opinion, She said that the policy was based, she basically agreed with both of those arguments. She said the policy is based on extremely, you know, questionable goals and that it was announced in a way that basically gave nobody any time to prepare for this um, because it was by the president himself on Twitter. And it implicates all kinds of (laughs) problems under the Fifth Amendment. So when this was challenged... um I would imagine the government just didn't cop and say like, yeah, you know, (laughs) Trump announced this on Twitter and we just back ended all of this. What did they actually say in court defending this this ban? Yeah, well, the thing is, and it is at an early stage, do want to say that I mentioned she issued a preliminary injunction. And so it's not a ruling on the merits, but for all of the at the at the time it was ruled out, the government after Trump issued the tweet was basically saying you know, this is necessary to, you know, preserve military resources and, you know, paying for people's, you know, medical, you know, gender reassignment surgeries and mm-hmm. things like that is not the kind of thing that the military should be doing. But for all of that, what it spent its time in court doing was basically trying to make it a standing issue. They said that these plaintiffs... Um, can't. This is not ripe for challenge yet because, again, after the tweets came out, this memorandum was issued, which was, frankly, even by my reading incredibly hard to understand. It basically directed DOD to kind of conduct a study about what the effect of the ban would be and then revisit the issue. So the government was, you can see how the government would say, Oh, this is not really like a policy. There's yet. no controversy this yet for you. Suspiciously sounds like the travel ban to me. Yes, and that's why I thought it would be good for us to talk about because we've talked about, you know, what do the president's statements and in this case tweets, you know, does that have the effect of policy? Can they be brought up in court? Yeah, right. and this judge, now different question and different court than than the travel ban, so take that with a grain of salt and all that. Um the judge here basically said that any ambiguity about what the policy is or isn't or when it's going into effect is completely rendered moot by the president's tweets. She even embedded the tweets within her opinion. Oh, she embedded them in the opinion. <laughs> yeah, like and, and like like screen grabs of like wow. not even, uh-huh. and, and you know basically saying there's nothing ambiguous about about the tweets. They say, you know, you can't uh, transgender people can't serve. Yeah. And that's and that statement in and of itself beyond what you proffer through government documents. Um, has the force of of policy. You said this was an early ruling on a preliminary injunction. So what's next up for this case? There will be more arguments made. um, And we don't don't know yet if the government will appeal this injunction ruling. Um, DOJ gave a very, we're we're very familiar with this in the media, gave a very like disappointed in the ruling or examining our options. Yeah. So they have more work to do. I'll be, this is just, my view. I mean, I'll be curious to see how aggressively they do this, uh, how aggressively they litigate this, just because we've talked many times already now about how unexpected it was. And it really seemed like kind of a 
a move to rile up the base. They're hoping yeah. Trump just sort of forgets about it. And now they're, I mean, I, I wouldn't speak for them, um, but, and now they're like in this like very contentious legal battle. Right. And again, as you say, not a ruling on the merits, but part of issuing a, an injunction is deciding whether or not the plaintiffs are likely to succeed. And this is like a 76 page opinion telling the administration why this policy yeah, sucks. Yeah, it's a pretty strident <laughs> opinion for that So they that could just stage. go for the, just go through with the merits case for a while and, and let the injunction, let the preliminary injunction stand. Yeah, yeah we'll yeah. see. And they certainly seem to have the, the government certainly seems to uh, have the deck stacked against it in terms of trying to convince her otherwise. So we'll have to keep, yeah. our, keep our eyes peeled. Thanks for bringing that, Alex. Yep. Our focus today is America's opioid epidemic, which killed more than 64,000 in 2016, and according to some experts, could kill as many as 650,000 people over the next decade. Last week, President Trump declared the crisis a public health emergency, but he stopped short of calling it the kind of national emergency that would have quickly allocated funds and other resources. Today, we're going to take a look at what's happening in the courts, where waves of lawsuits have been filed in recent months against both drug makers and retailers over their alleged role in fueling the crisis. Joining us to break it all down is Law360 senior reporter Andrew Wesney. Welcome, Andrew. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Andrew, thank you for joining us on the show. Um, I thought we'd start off with yesterday uh, a new case was filed by the state of New Jersey, and that sort of... Mm -hmm. Piqued my interest because it seemed like from your story, states have really taken the charge here when it comes to taking action on the on the opioid crisis. Absolutely, yeah. Um, could you sort of walk us through what's happened thus far um, when it comes to states taking action here? Right. Well, this year, 2017, has really kind of been the year for states taking this on. There's a there's mm -hmm. an ongoing uh, probe involving the attorney generals of, of almost every state. Mm -hmm. um, you know, this sometimes is thought of as kind of a, a Midwestern problem or more of a, you know, but it's it's really a nationwide problem. So you have states uh, from all over the map, literally, mm -hmm. uh, looking at this. And, you know, they're looking into the drug makers um, in particular, but distributors to a certain extent, and particularly looking at what the drug makers did to market these drugs starting back yeah. in the 1990s um, to medical professionals, especially, mm -hmm. and, and kind of creating essentially this uh this they opioid. made the market yeah they made the market yeah you know. and we said new jersey actually filed a suit i think some others have filed too can you tell us uh, a little bit about what those suits entail and maybe name off a couple other states that, that are, are involved that are distinct from this probe that right. i was talking about right right right, right. Uh, missouri is one that was uh in june mm -hmm. uh the state filed suit basically it's saying you know that that they the, these companies started out um trying to create this market. Yeah. But that even when dangers became apparent and, you know, these opioids started getting out to people mm -hmm. and being wi uh, widely abused, um, that they were aware uh, to at least some degree or should have been aware of how dangerous these drugs were and should have taken steps to, to you know, to kind of scale that back. But instead that they, they kind of kept on, you know, saying that this is a uh, non-addictive or very little addictive mm -hmm. alternative, you know, that this is kind of a, a miracle type drug um, as far as a painkiller goes. Um, and, uh, you know, so th these suits are saying that basically the companies knew that wasn't the case mm -hmm. and, um, and they profited hugely off these, uh, these uh, drugs. This has been bubbling up in the news cycle a lot this year and, and last year. 
Um, but uh, my hometown, uh, the city of Chicago, filed one of the earliest opioid cases back in like 2014. Uh, can you walk us through that case and what it sort of entailed? Right. Yeah. Uh, the city of Chicago. I mean, there there have been suits periodically, you know, since going uh, further back. But this is one of the big ones that's that, that's happening right now. In the recent in, wave. Right. right in, the, yeah, in, yeah. in this wave. Exactly. So Chicago uh, filed a complaint in federal court. That was filed in 2014. Um, saying that the city had paid for thousands of prescriptions for its employees, for city employees mm -hmm. that weren't medically necessary. They're, they're suing uh, Purdue Pharma, which is the maker of Oxycontin, uh, Cephalon, Janssen, which is a Johnson & Johnson subsidiary, yep. and a couple others. And that case is now in discovery. That's um, you know, it's, it's a huge case. It's a little bit slower moving. Um, it's interesting actually because uh, there's there's a question now. There's uh, there's been this whole wave of suits this year, yeah. and the question is, um, should there be a multi district organizationally? It's going to get a little unwieldy. I yeah, would imagine. It, it, it's it, you know things are all over the place. Courts are trying to figure out how to how to grapple with this. Mm -hmm. And you've actually had an interesting kind of a twist on this that the uh, plaintiffs in a lot of these. Um, recent suits, uh, often targeting distributors, mm -hmm. um, have moved to have an MDL put in place. They want to take it to uh, the Southern District of Ohio, which they call the epicenter mm -hmm. of this whole problem. Um, right. And uh, there's a question of, you know, should the the city of Chicago suit be part of it? You know, is it too old? It's it's much further along than some of these other suits. But mm -hmm. um, so that's that, there's a lot of uh, moving parts but as this, far as the MDL goes. This push for the MDL has come because because counties all over the country have filed counties and cities have filed these cases. Right? It's not just the city of Chicago. Right. Correct. Yeah. yeah. No, and and there's certain firms that are that are involved in a lot of these cases and that mm -hmm. are kind of maybe behind the the push to to consolidate in the MDL. But there are various firms involved, and that's one of the issues. You know, can you really kind of bring these all together. Um, so, so that's something that's being debated right now um, before the, the board that, you know, decides on the, on the MDL issue. So you actually mostly at Law 360 cover Native American law. Yes. Indeed. Which I want to tie in why you're the person talking about opioids with us today. Can you just tell us about how that connects to your main beat? Sure thing. Um, the Cherokee Nation, which is a federally recognized tribe in Oklahoma, brought a suit uh, similar to um, uh, some previous suits that have been filed in West Virginia and elsewhere against um, distributors and pharmacies, which includes Walmart, Walgreens, and CVS. So some new players there, it's, you know, targeting a different uh, level of the, the supply chain. Mm. Basically, the tribe is, is alleging that the distributors and the pharmacies had a responsibility to keep these drugs from getting out, that, that they bear uh, their share of the burden for creating this epidemic, this crisis, mm -hmm. um, you know, and that, you know, they point out there's all kinds of data showing just how widespread the opioid availability was and opioid abuse was yeah. on Cherokee uh, territory. It's, it's, it's a really interesting case for, for, for me for covering the, the kind of the Native right. American angle of it because the suit was originally brought in tribal court um, oh, okay. rather yeah. than federal court. And these companies quickly moved to try to get into federal court. And so it, there's, there's a lot of back and forth on yeah. that. It, it kind of brings up this whole question of can non-Indian companies get a fair shake in tribal court? It's like the specter that tribal courts aren't going to be fair, right. which, which tribes reject. Um, and certainly the Cherokee Nation has rejected in this case. But it's still an unresolved issue, and it's uh, it's going to be a very big one. And, of course, if the, the Cherokees are successful, that could definitely spur other tribes to, to seek uh, uh, similar suits. One of the common threads we're talking about here is – state and municipal governments pursuing legal action, the tribe pursuing legal action, but we haven't heard a lot about cases filed by individuals. I mean, what is the reason for governments and, you know, municipal and federal entities taking the lead on it? 
Yeah, I mean, states may be in certain ways better positioned to to tackle this opioid epidemic and the consequences mm-hmm. than individual plaintiffs. There have been suits by individual plaintiffs mm-hmm. are, are class actions. There's an, a pending class action in Arkansas right now. But states, you know, can point to the damage done and say, you know, somebody somebody has to pay for this, and, and you know, and, and and make these drug makers or distributors or pharmacies, whatever the case may be, pay their share. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to individuals, um, obviously they can they can point to the impact that the opioids um, have had on them. But these are prescription medicines. The the companies can argue that. You know, they these are regulated you know, by the federal government. Uh, they're prescribed by doctors. When you're taking them, you know what you're getting into. You know, there may have been people who, you know, got the drugs, obtained the drugs illegally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, got to muddy things quite a bit. Mm, yeah, and and um, people, even those who have taken them on prescription, uh, the companies could argue, well, did you do it exactly as right. you were supposed to to do it? You know, so it's there may be stronger defenses for the companies uh, against some of those individual claims compared to what the states, counties, and tribes uh, can point to. And we have even gotten into the the fact that the class breakdown of who has this problem, and you know, the how difficult it is for people in that in that section of the economy to acquire legal assistance, right? But. Right, yeah, there's there's that too. Um, you know, people compare the opioid epidemic and the litigation going on to tobacco, mm-hmm. um, but there's that big difference, right? That uh, opioids, you know, and the, being abused in that way, is, it's not the same. And p- the consequences, you know, people are you know often bankrupt and their health is destroyed yeah. by this. You know, well, your health can be destroyed by tobacco, but you may be in a better position sure. to, to mount a legal challenge sure. uh, with that. Thanks for being with us, Andrew. This is obviously something we hear about in the news all the time, and it's been really informative to know what the courts are doing to possibly address the issue. My pleasure. Thanks. We've talked on this podcast several times before about judges allegedly behaving badly, and we've got a what could be a pretty egregious example to discuss as we end the show today. Yeah, there's a really weird one out of New Jersey where there's this state judge whose name is John F. Russo Jr., and he has been accused of some extremely bizarre and in some cases very unsavory uh, behavior, both in his chambers and in open court, and it's resulted in this legal battle um, because of these acts he was the the court basically placed him on leave while they conducted this misconduct probe and he has responded by filing a discrimination suit basically saying he's getting getting the shaft from the court and his co-workers so what kind of stuff was revealed that he was allegedly doing yeah as as the listeners will will soon know i mean some of these are kind of weird and some of them are really gross but we'll just lay them out here this all came out in some documents that were published last week in the course of the suit so this judge judge russo Uh, has been accused of yelling at litigants in court and calling them liars. Uh, During another set of legal proceedings, he asked a domestic violence victim whether she had kept her legs closed in the course of whatever encounter she was there to litigate. Also, in his chambers, he displayed a picture of the poop emoji, like framed, framed picture of the poop emoji. Why in the world? This is getting weirder and weirder. On his wall, and then... Even more substantively, also accused of sexually harassing a clerk, uh, also in his chambers. I got to tell you, I I know we chose this to talk about on the podcast, and I do think it's something that's um, 
interesting for listeners, especially the lawyers who maybe have had judges that they thought were doing bad things. And so one of them being accused of that and going through some legal proceedings is an interesting thing to talk about. But I'm a little sick of talking about sexual harassers lately. It's Weinstein. It's, you know, Well, I didn't twist your arm to do this segment, but uh, the, (laughs) no, I'm kidding. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's it's not your fault. No one is uh, doing anything bad in in the Law 360 offices, but it's just, I feel like it's everywhere. It's, It's so, yeah. One of his one of his fellow judges testified against him, right? Yeah, I mean, it was basically her her allegations that 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 judge's name is Marlene Lynch Ford, and her her claims of his inappropriate behavior came out in a court filing on Friday, and she had a I mean, she is a legal writer after all, and she summed it up quite nicely. She said, um, "I'll just read directly quote: There have been several incidents in which Judge Russo made threatening or bizarre statements, exhibited explosive fits of rage." lacked appropriate courtroom demeanor or reasonable legal competence in the field of law assigned to him and otherwise exhibited extreme emotional immaturity. End wow. Quote. So that really gets at, at all of it. She wasn't, she wasn't very specific. I, uh, I think there's some other stuff that maybe he didn't do. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, like you said, I don't know. I mean, this probably won't, this isn't like something that's like fun to talk about, but it is, it is an example. Like I said, we was placed on, on leave and they're, you know, the, the legal process is going forward so we can take some heart in that. Um, they will need to arrive at a decision fairly quickly because the actual, for all this, for all this, you know, splashy stuff we're talking about, the actionable incident here is that the court is not allowing him to attend like a judicial training conference yeah. or something. At, right. Cause he's on leave currently. Yeah. So and he's, he and, and that's what fi- he filed the suit because of that. He was saying that they're, you know, that's a, that's a discriminatory act by them. That conference takes place at, uh, at the end of the month. So, I mean, if this interests you, you will, uh, you know, we'll, in- we'll include the story like we always do. And you can, uh, I don't know, take some comfort in the uh, judicial branch policing its own. Yeah, it's just so, uh, th- this story is very icky, but it's just so interesting, these big questions of what you do with judges, because judges are people, you know, we're sort of conditioned to treat judges like they're these, um, you yeah, know, like the, they're magical. And yeah, don't yeah, do yeah. anything wrong. And, and I mean, it's a, it's a, I think, it's to their credit that it's so often that we give them that much deference because a lot of times they earn that. But when you have these situations where these people who are, you know, appointed, I'm not sure how it works in New Jersey state court, but with federal judges yeah. for their, for life and a lot of time for a long time, what you do with these people <laughs> who are supposed to be the arbiters, who are supposed yeah. to be, when they're clearly showing human flaws, they're showing yeah. the, the same things that, that, that they are there to police and everyone else. It's, yeah. Yeah. It's, it'll be fascinating uh, dynamic. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Well, that wasn't a fun way to end our show today, but thanks for being with me through all of it today, Alex. Thank you. And Bill. See you again next week, guys. We also have other people to thank for today's show, including our producers, Kelly Marcano and Stephen Trader. We'd also like to thank our guest, Andrew Wesney, and contributing reporters this week, Braden Campbell, Kat Green, and Bill Weikert. Music for the show this week comes from Silent Partner and Little Glass Men. If you're interested in any of the stories we've talked about, you can find more on our website at law360.com slash podcast. And if you like us, please leave a review on iTunes. Thanks, and join us again next week.